Hey everybody, it is Stacey Higginbotham and Kevin Toffel, and this is the GigaOM Internet of Things podcast. Good afternoon, Kevin. Good afternoon. We should probably start by just getting it out of the way. No, I haven't installed or reinstalled the Insteon system again. Oh, it's like you knew I was going to ask. <laughs> I know. I, I'm, I'm reading the script, actually. I knew it was coming up. It's true. I am like the worst, <laughs> most horrendous nag. I'm like, Kevin, have you done your Insteon? I've got a kitchen makeover going on, and there's all kinds of craziness going on all here. Right, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Next week, I'll give you a bye. I'm not even going to ask. But you know hmm. what? What? I did what I was promising I was going to do. I actually installed the Logitech Harmony hub that I had been, I've been sitting on this thing since before Christmas, you guys. Um, and I'm sorry because I really should have installed this earlier because this was actually a very nice product. Psst. Hey, podcast listeners. It's Stacey Higginbotham before the formal intro to the show. This is a quick emergency correction because later on in the show, I'm going to say something that is wrong and I have to tell you about it beforehand. So later on in the show, when Kevin and I are talking about the Logitech Harmony Remote, Kevin is actually going to tell you or ask me, am I using the Logitech Harmony Ultimate Remote? Actually, it's the Logitech yeah, it's the ultimate remote, um, the Harmony Ultimate Home Remote. And I'm going to say no, but that self of me is lying to you. It is the Harmony Ultimate Home Remote that I'm using. So that is the correction that I need to make. So bear that in mind as you're listening to the podcast. The rest of the stuff is true. The product that I'm talking about does still cost $300. That is if you're shopping on Amazon. If you go to Logitech's site, it's actually $350. So don't do that. Um, never do that. Um, and that is all you need to know before you listen to the podcast. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Um, this is a $300. It's, it retails for $299 on Amazon. This is from Logitech. Um, it's the Logitech Harmony Home Hub. It comes with a remote, which you would expect from Logitech. Mm -hmm. um, and it also comes with a hub and two IR blasters. Let's see, does it come with anything else? It does not. And so I set it up on Sunday. And the cool part about this is it basically is... It basically integrates your smart home and home automation stuff with your television and kind of what's that called? Home entertainment stuff. Uh, you mm -hmm. can tell I'm not a. You can tell I'm not Yonko um, <laughs> with all the home entertainment stuff. Um, no, well, I mean, for people who aren't familiar with the, the Harmony line, I mean, Logitech has put out Harmony television and home entertainment remotes for years, and they've always been. There's a range of them, you know, from low end to high end. Um, you can easily spend three, three hundred fifty dollars just on a television remote, you know, say a year ago. Now they've added this home hub, which I think you can buy separately. I'm almost positive that you can. Um, but I, w the point being, integrating smart home controls into a programmable remote in the first place kind of makes sense. Especially we've mentioned it before, Stacey. You don't like to use your phone as that interface. It's true, but I can if I want to, which is kind of nice because now I have this like nifty remote that sits where and it replaces my other remotes mm -hmm. or it can if I want it to, which is always nice. Um, and I can also use my phone for when I'm not by the couch. Um, and 
I will say that my husband, I actually let him set it up. I, I, I shouldn't say let him. He actually <laughs> asked if he could set it up because he's like, you know, you're always setting this stuff up. And I think it would be kind of fun if I could try it and just kind of get the experience. And I was like, oh, my God, by all means, go yeah. to town. I would love for someone else who is not me to set these things up. Um, and he, he managed it quite nicely. So, mm-hmm. And if I if I recall correctly, the interface on the actual remote because that remote has like a two two and a half inch display on it is the same as the phone interface it is actually not the same as the phone interface oh so you can, false advertising you can okay well wait wait it's <laughs> i think it's maybe just confusing advertising so okay. you could actually buy there is a fancier version of the remote you can buy so if you want to spend more than three hundred dollars you can buy a fancier version of the remote that is bigger better and comes with a larger screen that mimics mm. exactly the the look of the gotcha app I, on the phone i'm looking at the harmony ultimate home website right now that's probably where the confusion sets in yes so you the, don't have you don't have the ultimate home i do not website. have the ultimate i believe i just have the harmony home harmony no there is home. no ultimate in my home okay. um, and that has a tiny I mean, it's probably two in I feel like two inches seems right. And it is, it's, it's color, it's capacitive touch. Um, so you can touch it and move things around. You slide it to open it. It's actually a little, as, as someone who really loves to push buttons, I'm kind of like, oh man, I'm just tapping all the time and sliding and tapping and long pressing. And, you know, I'm like, I just want to push buttons, people. Um, but so what I most enjoyed about it and this this is probably very specific to my house, mm-hmm. but I liked that not all, but many of my recipes, I, I have several recipes that I like around my television. And mm-hmm. if I, I imagine a lot of people who have like connected televisions have pretty complicated remote systems. Like it takes three remotes, three separate remotes to turn on my television and get everything going. Mm-hmm. Um, so I set up a watch TV command that has all three of my devices turning on in the right, the right order. Mm-hmm. And it also dims my hue lights after sunset. So it, it turns my hue lights in the living room down to 50%. Um, and I could hook it up, but I didn't hook it up to my Lutron lights in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could turn those off actually. Which makes sense because you're going to sit somewhere else and watch TV. Right. But, you know, you know how you're like, you know, getting in the kitchen and you're, you know, you kind of sit, you kind of all gravitate over to the TV and maybe you forgot to turn off the lights and you're like, ah, dang it, I got to get up. But Mm -hmm. now you can be like, so literally with like the press of a button, it all happens. And that was actually pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, So I have a watch TV and I also could make, I didn't make because I was kind of like, do I really need to do this? But I could also actually even make a watch Netflix. So I could take it one step further and go add a couple more kind of steps in the programming thing and go mm-hmm. st- instead of just watch TV and get to my like, I have, a, I have a Sony Blu-ray player that I run everything through for my internet TV, mm-hmm. but I could go two steps further and just bring up Netflix straight up. Right. Or I could bring up like Hulu. Um, so I could actually have buttons that just like I Netflix press it time. and everything just like the channel I want goes on basically, mm-hmm. which is pretty sweet. That's pretty cool. So you mentioned that it, it you've got everything going through your uh, connected Blu-ray player. What does the Home Hub actually work with in terms of devices and protocols and whatnot? 
Okay, so here we go. Here we go. I'm guessing it's a long list? It's, well, it's not everything in my house. But uh -huh. what it doesn't work with... Okay, so we're... Okay, so when I set it up, it automatically detected all of my sonuses. Sonai. Sonuses. I have no idea. <laughs> we asked John McFarlane, the CEO of Sonus, and he said it was Sonuses. He would know. We're going we're gonna to default mm -hmm. to him, defer mm -hmm. to him. Although I, the creator of GIFs says GIFs and I say GIFs. I'm not giving him, I'm not giving him that. Um, anyway, so it found the Sonuses. It works with Nest, although you have to, it doesn't auto discover the Nest. You have to add it. Um, it also integrates with SmartThings. So the SmartThings hub, mm -hmm. which means then it can take advantages of all the radios that the SmartThings hub has. Um, so I can link from SmartThings in through some of my Z-Wave devices. So if I sit down and watch the movie, I guess I could bring in my door locks and make sure they're all locked before I settle in to watch like some scary movie, um, which is very important to me <laughs> because yikes. Um, it also <laughs> ties into the Peak Home Hub. Um, it links into the Insteon system. It works with the Lutron lights. I feel like it works with, oh, it works with that's the Hue lights. That's a lot of uh, that's a lot of integrations. There are there are tons of integrations, hmm. and there are more coming. There, I mean, the goal is to have. I will say it, it was a little dodgy getting the hues to work. Um, I had to. Oh, oh, and I will say it also works with all these IR things. Mm -hmm. um, so it found because it's it's Logitech, it found I had to add the model number of my. Blu-ray player, my Yamaha receiver, and then my TV, and it just found those right away. It was like, boom, got it. Mm -hmm. Boom, got it. See, this is where the company's uh, vast, uh, I'd say, database of That's of exactly products. what it is. It's a database. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's exactly it, because these Harmony remotes have worked with all of these different manufacturers' televisions for years, so they just built that database up and up and up, and now they're just kind of you know, adding onto it. And, and that's the beauty of these programmable remotes. I mean, you can just download, a, you know, it's like the matrix. I don't know how to hotwire this motorcycle downloading now. Okay. got it. Boom. Done. So, so yeah. And like, as far as programming it in mm -hmm. like, it was pretty easy to program. It was, I mean, it, it took maybe, we had a few glitches where we were trying to remember how we hooked up our system, mm -hmm. but that wasn't, that wasn't Logitech's fault. That was just us being like, oh, did we do HDMI 1 as the input, HDMI 2? Um, and we didn't like hook up any of our game consoles or anything like that. Um, and there were some interesting features that I don't know if they're there as a tease or we just couldn't figure out how to get them to work. But like on the app, it had like an option where you could touch things to make them work. Like it had a little visual schematic of devices like the TV hmm. outlined in like a darker color like when it was on mm -hmm. and it was like touch to engage and I touched it, but it did not let me engage. It did not engage. Mm. So I, I don't know if that was like coming or if that just didn't work at the time, but I was, I was very intrigued by the option to touch things and engage with them. I was like, Ooh, mm. that could be a lot of fun. Mm. Hey, so. I see, I see support for the August smart lock and Roku as well here. Oh yes. Oh yeah. I got rid of my Roku. Some of these things didn't show up for me because they're not in my house. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, there's, there's a lot of like for $300, this seems like a really 
good thing for someone to buy, especially if they're already accustomed to playing with a Harmony, like a Logitech remote. Mm-hmm. Or they, they've got a wide range of devices in the house and kind of want to tie them together. Yeah. I, I don't know if this would be a great source if you want to really mess with a lot of home automation. Like if you want to start doing some really complicated home automation, yeah. this may not be the best device. But like if you're like one of those people who's like, I really like the works with Nest stuff. This is not going to interfere with your works with Nest stuff. This probably wouldn't interfere with HomeKit, although we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. um, but this might be a great kind of product for something like that because it gives you a lot of stuff around your home entertainment. Um, it lets you start kind of playing with some of the rules and home automation that you might want to do. But it's not going to you don't really have to mess with a lot of stuff if you don't want to. Yeah, plus you've got your choice of using the included remote or a smartphone app on iOS or Android, which is kind of nice. You're not tied to one or the other. Exactly. Hmm. 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 Amazon wish list. Here we come. There you go, Kevin. <laughs> um, although since I've had this since November, and it, I'm going to try it out for another couple weeks, but then I do need to actually send it back. Oh, and I should say later versions, back when they launched this, they said later versions will support more radios. I don't think those later versions are actually out yet. Mm -hmm. um, I am talking to the CEO of Logitech, or yes, the CEO of Logitech later this week. So we'll look for an update then, but maybe, uh, maybe I'll send you the next version of this and you can try it out. Well, then I got to find time to install it. And no, I'm kidding. Oh, this was like this was like maybe an hour. <laughs> no, this this actually agreed. This sounds like uh, more of a plug and play type system uh, that that would be pretty easy for most people to use. So, yes, this cool. Yeah, not hard. This, there's no running around and pushing buttons unless no, you, unless no you want to add those other things. Right. Right. Okay. Well, and like let's it. see. Okay, so what else is happening this week? That was that was my device fun for this weekend. Um, Bluetooth. Bluetooth. Gotta talk, talk Bluetooth. Oh yeah. So today, actually, so this is the, once again we are working in the past in full disclosure mode. We are recording on Monday, and and Tuesday is when this goes out. But um, on Tuesday, the Bluetooth Sig, uh, the the standards group in charge of Bluetooth, is going to announce a working group for to is going to create a working group for mesh networking. And you guys are like, blah, blah, mesh networking. No, this is good. This is big. But this is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, mesh networking for Bluetooth is big. It's going to help it. It's going to help Bluetooth compete better against Zigbee, Z-Wave, and the looming thread standard. Um, because mesh networking lets you hop from place to place, uh, gives you resiliency in networks, and it'll help Bluetooth go the distance in the home and in kind of commercial and industrial buildings. Mm-hmm. Now this is this is kind of the beginning of a group that's going to hopefully implement something. This is not an implementation that's coming out. Right. Oh, I should be so clear. Thank you, Kevin. Sure. That's why I'm here. So the working group is going to be chaired by a man named Robin Hayden, um, who is the creator of a standard called CSR Mesh. And we've actually talked about CSR Mesh on the show before, but CSR is it's a silicon company in in. England, who is actually in the process of being bought by Qualcomm. Mm -hmm. And CSR Mesh is CSR's version of a Bluetooth mesh networking technology. There are other companies that have built Bluetooth mesh software. Uh, Zuli, the smart plug company, is one. Um, I believe there are others, but those are probably the ones we've talked about most. And CSR Mesh is probably the most popular. Um, so 
what this is what this has done, and it's in products already. Um, but once the Bluetooth SIG does the working group and hopefully adopts some kind of mesh, then we would see it across like all Bluetooth products would have this cap- would have the option of offering this capability. So th- this could actually get adopted by the SIG to be a Bluetooth standard in the future. It would be part of the Bluetooth standard, right? Okay. And so some of the things you can do because you're like, who cares, mesh? Um, so some of the things you can do that I think are pretty neat. Um, one, we talked about distance, but you can do things like, I think that the coolest thing I think is actually the, the asset model stuff that they're talking about doing. Um, and this won't come out in the CSR mesh and it may never come out. So let's, let's divide this up into the CSR. Now we're going to talk only about the CSR mesh because we wrote a story that was out on Monday about the CSR mesh. Um, and what they've done is they've got a lighting standard out now um, that groups that can control 64,000 light bulbs, um, which is a lot of light bulbs, y'all. That's a lot of light bulbs. You can, yeah. you can group a lot. And actually, you could actually group 64,000 light bulbs into like one group, and then you can control 64,000 groups of 64,000 light bulbs, which I is... I can hardly wait for Christmas time to decorate my house with this. <laughs> which, yes, I'm like, <laughs> that's like more than 4 million light bulbs. That's a lot of light bulbs. Um, so go to town. Send me a video, Kevin. Yeah. No, I, I think I'd be run out of the, the neighborhood if I did this. Dude, you won't even stick your Insteon out. You're not going to do this. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'll believe it when I see it. We'll um, see. So that, that's kind of what's out today. And there's products like the Samsung Smart Lights. Avion has some light bulbs. And these are really cool because what you can do with this is you can actually, you, because it's low, low power, because it's Bluetooth, you can wire in a light bulb. And then you can pop a switch anywhere on your wall and you don't have to wire it, which is awesome. So you mm-hmm. can turn this light bulb off and off from this switch that's conveniently placed wherever you want it. Woo! Um, so I think that's pretty handy. Yay. Mm-hmm. Um, in April, they're going to come out with a home automation version of CSR Mesh that kind of offers similar low power capabilities to door locks via, that's the actuator kind of Part, so it'll give you lower power kind of ability to actuate things. So door locks, vents opening and closing via Bluetooth. Mm-hmm. And then the sensors, uh, you know, thermostats, anything that senses, right? Oh, I want to see some presence involved here so I can open vents where I'm in the room. Exactly. That's where we're mm-hmm. going to, that's where this is going to happen. And it's going to do it all at an even lower power, basically. Um, and the cool thing about the CSR mesh, unlike Zigbee and Z-Wave, For the true nerds out there who are like wondering why this is different. Unlike Zigbee or Z-Wave, the CSR mesh is a broadcast mesh. So it just, like when it wakes up, it shouts out what it needs to do. And everybody like who's awake at that moment grabs the message. Um, In Zigbee and Z-Wave, they're actually a, a, a routed or a rooted mesh. So everybody's awake routing messages to each other. So it goes, it hops from one link to the other link to the other link. Um, so that's kind of the difference between the two. And there's pros and cons to each. Um, so that's kind of how it's different. Um, so in, in the case of like the sensors, the way that they're going to work is when they wake up with something different, they'll wake up and shout it, but they can actually shout it to a proxy. So if I'm like a, a door sensor, I just have to wake up once when the door opens and I'm like, I'm open. 
and then I go back to sleep. And I could actually shout it to anything that's awake. And if that thing is awake, like a light bulb, mm-hmm. which is plugged in, that's my proxy. And the light bulb will take that information. And since it's always awake and can convey that information, it'll just like hold on until somebody needs that information, like that the door's aw- the door opened. And it'll just be like the door's open, the door's open, the door's open, the door's open until whatever needs that information, which mm. is actually pretty cool. I know that's a chatty light bulb, right? Anyway, that's okay. So that's that's how that kind of works. And then later on in October, they're going to start releasing, or towards the end of the year, rather. I shouldn't be so specific. They would hate me. Um, I'm hoping it's October. They're going to come out with an asset model. And the asset model for the standard, the CSR mesh standard, is super sweet for people like me who always lose things. Um, <laughs> and this, there's there's two elements to this. One is like the losing things and one is the like doing cool things as you get nearer and far. I think of it as the the, the Sesame Street thing because like that near, far. Far. So in the near and far version, when you come near something, it's going to, because Bluetooth, you know, knows how close you are to something, it will let you, like your light bulb will come on when you're X feet away from something. Just like it works now with your door locks. If you've got like an August lock or a Kivo or something like that, when you get close to it, you have the option of actually letting it unlock your door. Mm-hmm. Well, this is actually a way to implement it in a much easier way as opposed to like the way they do it now. So, and you can do this for more than just door locks. It could be for presence detection. It can be for, you know, light bulbs going on. It could be for all this. So that's pretty sweet. And then the same sort of asset model technology will let you find things when they're lost. So you can be like, oh my God, I lost my keys, but there's a Bluetooth fob on them. And then you just ask your house, you're like, hey, did you see my Bluetooth key or my my key fob? And your kitchen might be like, oh, the light's in the kitchen. It sends out a message to everything. And then the kitchen lights will be like, oh, I saw it, I saw it, they're nearby. And then, Something else will say, oh, no, they're right next to me, you know, and then boom, you found your keys, which again, pretty sweet. Yeah, I like that. I do too. I like that a lot. So I'm re- I'm really excited about all of these things. And at the same time, I'm also really disheartened because I'm like, well, that's so sweet. Uh, <laughs> I want it all now. I don't want to buy anything. now. Now I don't know what radio standards to embrace. The downside is that everyone will tell you is that these are not all IP enabled. Um, So if you believe that every device, instead of like having like no access to the internet, then you don't want this kind of thing. You'll want something like Thread. So Thread will have a mesh networking standard that is IP enabled and lets everything go each device individually to talk back to the cloud. So that's kind of like the division here between something like Bluetooth, a mesh standard for Bluetooth, so CSR mesh in this case, mm-hmm. and thread, which cool. doesn't exist yet. Right, right. Okay, that was a lot. That was a lot, because that was cool stuff. It was cool stuff. So I don't know. I think that's probably enough. What do you think, Kevin? All right. Why don't we call it a wrap, then? I think we should, and we'll stay tuned for this week's guest. We are going to talk to John Kestner about security and the Internet of Things. And I know we've been harping on this a lot, but it's a big topic and one we're not going to solve. And then like this month. Oh, but before we go, this is the last week to send in your emails Mm. 
to win the Chamberlain My Q Garage Door Opener. So, deadline for entries is February 28th, midnight. I'm going to call it Central Time because that's the time zone I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you send an email to iotpodcasts at gigaohm.com, and that's that's actually iotpodcast singular mm-hmm. at gigaohm.com. We only have one podcast. One podcast. Po- yeah, one podcast for IoT because that's that's enough. Yeah. Um, so send that to me before midnight, February 28th. All you have to do is send us a question. We may or may not read it on the show. And I will enter your name to win the Connected Garage Door Opener. And next week's show, we will announce the winner. Um, we'll probably try to hit a few more of your questions because Kevin is not going to install the Insteon between now and then. <laughs> we just know it. I might buy a Harmony Remote Hub, though. I don't know. He might. Or, you know, he can wait till you I... You never know. You never know. So, and we will send some more questions. And by the way, we've gotten a lot of questions from people asking us about retrofitting their old alarm systems. Mm. It's a darn good question. It's actually, it it's actually one I've been wondering about myself. So I'm going to try to find out answers for you guys, but not for the show well we'll do a show on it too but it's it's going to be a work in progress because there's in researching it there's a lot of different things to do and i'm actually going to try to retrofit my own house too with some options to test it out for you so stay tuned but this might be like a like end of march early april kind of thing because there's a lot of things and it's kind of complicated and some of the options are just crap it's it's very involved, and I'm very curious because we have an old system here in the house that's just sitting around doing nothing. And it might be that none of the options are great, to be honest. So stay tuned for this and more. Hey, everybody, we are back. This is Stacy Higginbotham, and I am joined by John Kessner, who is a principal with Super Mechanical. Hi, John. Hey, how's it going? It is going super well. So I am going to tell you a little bit about Super Mechanical. Um, These are the guys who are behind the range kitchen thermometer. Um, I shouldn't call it the kitchen thermometer because you can actually take it outside and they have one for the grill too. Um, John, do you want to say anything else about Super Mechanical? Oh, just that we're uh, interested in making objects that are connected and, you know, kind of exploring uh, what that means, like, it isn't a computer. It isn't exactly your old object. Um, so how do you treat it? So, you know, we want to make consumer devices, but we want to, uh, you know, kind of create a, explore, we want to create what future consumer electronic devices will look like. Got it. And I, I, I like talking to you because every time I walk away with Well, I like talking to you first off, because we often talk about food and cooking and connected devices, which is a passion of mine. But I like the way you think about these things because you do think about them as a whole new class of functionality on top of the functionality that we have in our devices. So you're you're like, okay, this is a spoon. And when you add connectivity, it can become more than a spoon, but it's not just like a spoon with an app. And that was probably a terrible way to explain it, but that's why I like, that's why I like you. Uh, Thanks. I mean, yeah, this is uh, something that we were talking about um, in connection with that Kaspersky uh, report that was about security and objects. And the uh, takeaway I got from that is 
people don't take security seriously because that connected doorknob still looks like a regular doorknob. Exactly. So yeah, we were going to have you talk about security on the show because we have been doing in the last couple of weeks, we've spent a lot of time talking about security, my colleague Kevin and I, and then we've had some guests talk about this. And one of the common things that people will say about kind of security in the Internet of Things is you have to design with security in mind. And since you design products, I thought, well, let's talk to someone about that, what that means. Um, and the 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 Kaspersky I can never say it Kaspersky Labs thing that you sent which was like basically people are saying hey I just designed an oven and I'm gonna add you know connectivity to it and they think of it in terms of connectivity but if you're a hacker you think of it in terms of like oh they just put a computer on this and I can get into that um, so how are you guys when you think about designing a connected product like how do you think about security? Do you think about it at all or kind of? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, you're right. You definitely have to think about it from the beginning. And what I'm interested in doing, which I don't think that many people have done yet, is kind of what I referred to, which is building it actually into the form. Because I feel like one of the main failings today is educating the consumer on why security is important. Um, you know, like with software, bad things happen, someone steals credit card numbers, and the actual effect we feel is, you know, not much. And, um, you know, at most, the credit card company usually takes care of it. But when you're talking about uh, devices in the real world, obviously, like an oven, it can do something pretty bad uh, if someone hacks it. Um, one way in which we've kind of avoided uh, the more serious implications ourselves is by not designing anything that actuates anything. Um, you know, we tend to stay on the listening, the monitoring side. And I mean, while that can still have problems, uh, that avoids things like your house burning down, your car driving away and crashing into a brick wall. Um, so, you know, like with something like Twine, our first uh, connected object, we designed from the very beginning, it had a low-level protocol, um, which by itself was a bit of security by obscurity. And then we added some encryption that was SSL class, um, but saving a bit of computational power uh, for purposes of battery life. Added more security through obscurity. Um, and that just kind of overall encrypted the connection from each individual node to our server. Um, and... I don't know, knock on wood, it's been pretty good so far. Okay. Now, I would say, though, security through obscurity only works for as long as your product remains obscure, oh, which yes. for a lot of these devices is probably, I mean, I, I'm not going to insult Twine or anything like that, but <laughs> no. you know, your goal is probably not to be like, yes, this is such a great product. We're only going to sell 500 of these things, right? Um, so... Let's in. I'd actually even be curious about your framework, even for thinking about security, because when I think about it, I'm like, you've got hardware, software, you've got the internet, and then you've got the user, and that's kind of when I'm looking at the different kind of weak, not even weak points, but the different points of where someone kind of has. We'll call it weak points, um, but. I, I don't know how you guys think about it, and that's probably a good place to start so we can talk about like how you think about security at each level. Mm -hmm. um, well, I guess 
going back to Twine, you know, we just have a hardware, software, firmware stack, and we just tried to keep the, you know, the point at which our network and Twine Twines themselves were exposed uh, to the, you know, to a public network, and we made sure we encrypted that, and overall kept things really simple. Um, that ho the whole process that manages all those connections is kept really simple, so you just cannot do very much damage in the first place. We can't create too many errors ourselves as coders, um, and that helps. I mean, another, of uh, and probably a, a bigger entry point is going to be the website that a user will use to maintain their twine, entering their password, and so it's uh, susceptible to all the typical attacks that people put onto websites because then, uh, you know, they have access as a user and they can uh, do whatever a user does and probably something more if we didn't uh, do our job well. Okay. And then you guys, and I would even say once we're talking about the device and then the website, there's also kind of a security issue in the data itself in oh. terms of accessing it later. I mean, a lot of my devices, I don't think Twine does this or the range thermometer, but mm -hmm. like a lot of my devices actually send all of my crazy data, even my sensor data up to the cloud. And if you can access my sensor data in the cloud, you can actually tell a lot of stuff about me. Like, oh, look, Stacy's in the shower right now. Or, <laughs> oh, Stacy's outside. She's not in her home right now. Oh, she hasn't been in her home in three days. Huh. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that that's a great point. I, um, I, I totally slipped by that one. Um, yeah, no, we we take careful aim because we aren't, you know, our business model is not anywhere near centered around selling your data, and we don't have some hope that we might in the future. Uh, you know, we we just try to engineer that out totally. So, for example, with range. There's not a whole lot it needs to talk to the cloud for. It's mostly um, to ease the pairing between uh, thermometer and phone so that if you connect it to one phone, your other phones will automatically get a remote notification that your cookies are done, that kind of thing. Um, but we've been careful to keep that completely anonymous. So the only way that we know who is tied to what uh, row in our database is when they contact support for something then it also has that unique ID that is, you know, part of their app installation. So, I mean, that's partially due to Apple enforcing a certain amount of anonymity. Uh, we don't ask for them to create an account or anything like that because each range has a unique ID. And so that's kind of the key to their account. Um, you know, and yeah, kind of going back to what you said, that really does um, depend on thinking about how you want to architect the thing from the beginning and what your goals are. And we were able to do that, but that really just comes from what is our motivation? Our motivation is not to play with people's information. Um, you know, we're deep in the heart of Texas and we're a bit libertarian ourselves. So, you know, we want to, we would want our own data kept private. And so, you know, if you're, if you're, if you make your money by selling hardware, then I think it's easier to live by those rules, right? I don't know. Ask Lenovo. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Well, I'd, maybe they don't make their money uh, selling commodity laptops then. Oh, well, that's a good point. Um, well, how does that change, though, when um, I'm sitting here thinking two things? I'm like, oh, I should ask a real question. But I'm also like, dang it, I would love to know when my neighbor is baking cookies. I could show <laughs> up at their door at just the right time. Uh, I would pay real money for that information. Um, 
But how how would that change if you're involved in like tying that that notification about cookies or dinner being ready to other things like a television or I, I don't know why I would want my washer to know this, but I'm I'm trying to think of like if I'm upstairs and I want my lights to blink. Yeah, no, that's a good question, especially when, uh, you know, proposed standards like all join kind of just broadcast that data. Um, I'm not sure how much they've developed in the way of access control, um, but I think that they kind of err on the side of more wide open, probably just because we don't know how people are going to use it. We want to be able to experiment and that's okay. Um, Yeah, that's a good question. Like, would you, you know, make it really easy for users to create private networks between objects. Um, That could be one thing. Or you could have some kind of way of physically pairing things. Um, Because, of course, it's a real pain to configure everything on the network. And then beyond that, I mean, like, how many people have configured security settings on their network? Uh, You know, so that's a problem. You know, with range, we got around that by requiring you to just physically plug the two devices together, they're paired. And so if you don't have physical ownership of the device, you can't mess with it. Um, and that's a, you know, that's something that we're able to do, but not everyone is because that's not wireless right now. Right. Well, and, well, I'm just thinking about, you know, cause once the Samsung TV issue from a couple uh, weeks yeah. ago was, was an example. I mean, that's, it's less that the TV might be listening and more that, I mean, of course it's listening at, to some of the things you say because it has to for voice control. But the disturbing thing is that some of that data may be shared with its partners and you're not sure exactly who those people are and what they might do with it. And that's that's actually very common terms in a lot of the terms and conditions that, you know, are in with connected devices. Right. In if I link my range thermometer or my twine uh, sensor to my Samsung TV, for example, then all of a sudden, does Samsung share my my cookie baking habits with uh, this person really loves to cook dinner for people? Um, I, I don't know. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of an interesting, and as a startup, um, you know, do you really have an ability to say to Samsung, hey, wait, don't don't take my data. And how does that, how does the user kind of experience, how does the user take control of that? I mean, I'm just thinking about like, how do we think about designing a system that lets the user have that option or power? Yeah, no, I think like we had a bit of a Twitter uh, conversation because you had mentioned about how much uh, it costs to for AT&T not to collect information about you. And that kind of begins to get at, well, okay, maybe if your own private data has a value, is there, yeah, a way to seamlessly create, I don't know, some kind of a marketplace for it, but something where, I mean, it's kind of funny because I think a huge problem is that users um, don't understand or don't care about the value of that information. And I mean, unless some really simple demonstration is made, um, and then, of course, people will swing completely the other way, like, oh, my God, my house can burn down if I don't watch it. Um, but maybe a, a better argument to be made is, hey, this is how much your data is worth. Why do you want to be giving it away for free? 
Now, of course, building the infrastructure for that is a completely different thing, but um, maybe it has to come first from uh, creating will from the users. I think one of the challenges is our value is very, it's worth very little individually. Yeah. In aggregate, our value is, is pretty substantial. And that's one of kind of the challenges. I mean, I, if I think about like training an algorithm, for example, once you've got the hordes of data from, from hundreds of thousands of people, your algorithm might be priceless. But until you get to that point, it's, it's worthless. And getting there is getting that data from people is, is not an individual transaction. I, and I, I don't know, I know that I've talked to some people very briefly about using things like uh, blockchain kind of for mm -hmm. privacy and kind of data, kind of managing your data flows. But I, I've never been able to like grok how that would work. And they've not been very good at explaining it to me. So Either I'm I'm just dumb, or it's just not really thought out yet enough. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, well, well, pe people have shown uh, through simple demonstrations too. If they have like a couple of really simple bits of information about you, they can de-anonymize you, right? So I think it's like something as simple as like a zip code and I don't know your last name or your birth date or something like that. And there's so many vectors to get at people that. It just feels like a losing battle, you know. So I don't know who who are we trying to protect ourselves against from hackers, from companies uh, just misusing our data. Um, you know, what is what is like the worst thing that can happen? I mean, if we take it back to Internet of Things, I think the thing that maybe some people will be most worried about is, yeah, what happens if you have access to something that can do physical things in my environment? True. All right. So yes, let's take it back to hackers because. That's that's probably most people's concern or quote unquote bad guys like turn in your connected locks when you're not at home. Right. Um, so let's let's kind of go back to design, because when you're thinking, I mean, it, it's probably not. Do you think it's reasonable to expect that people will not have their stuff? connected kind of to the internet with robust kind of applications or web apps? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's difficult. Um, you know, like one, one thing I've always wondered is as the number of computers in our house uh, proliferates, who's going to play the IT person? Um, because that's basically what you're signing up for. And it's really just that responsibility just seems to be being abdicated. Um, I mean, you have to demand like seamless firmware updates to fix every security hole that's going to happen. Um, I just don't know how people are going to keep up with that or how you can expect a company to do that. You know, do you need to look for some kind of a seal of approval that says this company will, um, you know, do a good job of maintaining security? You know, well, does it have to be bounties for these kinds of things? You know, how does it get policed? Well, I think I, I think that there are some things that you can expect a company to do. And I don't know if there is like a good housekeeping security seal of approval that needs to be implemented. But I, I think I, I did a story a while back about a company called Synac that was a, it's a security company and they, they're, kind of a subscription-based security company and they have hackers and 
you just kind of, they constantly update. Um, but some of their, their recommendations were um, that the firmware firmware should be pushed out automatically to devices, especially security firmware updates. Um, and, and I kind of tend to agree on that. I know that everybody hates firmware updates, especially like when you turn on your lights and you're like, yay, my lights are on. And then you're like, they're not on because they're doing a firmware update. That sucks. <laughs> um, so we've got to figure out a way to do them in the, in like the times, like, I mean, we've got, we've got smart systems now algorithmically my house should be like this is the time stacy does not usually need her lights this is the time we push out the firmware update right mm -hmm. because if you've got connected lights they should be on almost all the time right, right. um so that that feels very doable right so yeah. It, it's yeah it's doable um but i mean I still don't necessarily, I mean, I, I think it's like, well, it's a developer cost and they've already made their money off of selling you the hardware. I mean, you know, like my camera, I have a Sony camera that I like a lot and it's had, I think, two firmware updates. The Mac installer for that firmware update is so horrible, I haven't actually been able to update those. And if it has any future bugs, you know, what's their incentive to actually push any more updates for me, you know? A fine from the FTC. Oh, really? That's I. I really do think that there should be, there should be fines. And I mean, because you're right. Once a consumer's purchased something, unless that unless there's a big wide scale hack that the the news like blows, you know, up and goes crazy with, then there needs to be some sort of monetary punishment for these companies. I'll say it. I'm, I'm maybe not as libertarian as you are. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's better than uh, a law. And I mean, I, you know, I, I question overall. Um, I mean, I think it would have to be consumer or industry led because I, I wonder whether the government can possibly keep up with tech um, and really write effective policy. Um, I mean, I don't know. It, it, you know, it, tech has grown so much uh, rampant. I mean, we're talking about these issues because no one has been keeping it in check beyond just like what nerds know is the right thing to do. Uh, I, I think if we don't, if, if we don't have some sort of laws or some sort of true governmental understanding and at least a framework at a, even at a regulatory body perspective, we run the risk of having some sort of knee-jerk legislation passed that will be far and away worse than what we would get if we proactively pass something. I mean, time and time again, we see that these laws that are passed after something horrible has happened are so much worse and so much, I mean, just ineffective at what they're trying to do because they're, they're passed in a climate of like panic and like, yeah, I don't know. No, I, I totally agree. Um, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm willing to have, and, and I think the FTC, when they did it, I mean, they recently put out a report. Uh, I want to say it was, it was earlier this month, actually, a couple of weeks ago. And in reading that report, I feel like it did take them a long time to get there from, I mean, <laughs> from their hearings in November of like 2013. But it, they, they understood the stakes fairly well. Um, and, I don't think that they proposed anything that was all that crazy. They didn't want an industry, they didn't want an IoT specific framework for protecting data, for example. They wanted, they just wanted a generic 
laws that helped protect people's data. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes sense. I think having rules that say, that don't like say, hey, you know, Sony, you know, don't make your update process so hairy and awful, but saying, hey, if you make it really difficult for the consumer to protect their data in the future, you know, or some sort of unreasonable cost to the consumer to protect their data, that's a problem. I think that's probably pretty good. Yeah, I think that could be done. I mean, like with the Lenovo incident, um, you know, while in our circles, they were shamed, the average person still doesn't know or care or understand anything about that. So they definitely have to be enforced um, from somewhere. Right. Because yes, most people are like, man in the middle attack, what? Superfish? Huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, I mean, that kind of goes back to what I think is a bit of a design issue, which is, you know, how can you make people at least on some level, understand a bit more about what's happening. Um, you know, consumer electronics are magic, and there's really no transparency. It's really hard to gain any kind of mental model as to what's happening. Um, I mean, at least when we used Ethernet, you know, we knew when something was connected to the network or not. We could physically unplug it if we wanted. Um, and I guess now we have lights and things run out of batteries, and <laughs> that that's the way we presumably know, but then... Uh, um, I don't know. Um, you know, and, and when people are kept in the dark, um, I wonder if there's like more of a curiosity barrier, barrier to overcome that makes them, um, you know, want to educate themselves on it. If that well, makes sense. No, that does. And that's, that's actually one of the other things that I am actually really a proponent of. I feel like when people, for, from a security perspective, I feel like when there's a breach, Actually, when people are connected and when people aren't connected needs to be obvious, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I have devices that go offline and don't tell me. I actually had a home security system that went offline and didn't tell me. Um, and I was like, yeah, that, that should be fixed. I'm, sh- I'm sure they fixed that. That was, that was a beta version I was testing. Um, so I, I'm sure that was on the list. Um, so... So making sure things like when they go offline, you know, I think that's important from a hacking perspective. Um, I don't know how to tell people like, I mean, there's, there's no way even now, if your email has been hacked, sometimes you don't know until your friends are telling you like, by the way, you just sent me like, you know, a bunch of stupid links. I think you've been hacked, right? Yeah. I don't know if there's an equivalent in the connected world. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, you're making me think of how some websites I use, if I simply log in from a different IP address or at least a different device, um, it kind of alerts me to that fact. Um, sometimes they'll even send me emails saying, hey, this device logged into your account. You can ignore this if it was you. And maybe there's a slightly lighter way, way to do it. But to know that um, my connected doorknob was accessed from any any device and knowing that I think my you know just like even a bit of ambient awareness of how it's talking would be a thing and your door locks like I know that the most of the connected door locks on the market do tell you or will show you the activity and even the smart home hubs you can go into uh, you can see your home's history and you can see all of that activity Mm -hmm. so 
you can see who's accessed what and what's been happening. Does it push a notification to you if someone new talks? I think you could set it up for that. Like I know like the doorknobs, you can get a notification anytime someone opens your door. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also turn those off though, depending on how you live. I mean, like if you've got a, if you live in a sorority house, you may not want a notification every time someone Mm -hmm. comes into your house. Uh, My house, I probably would, but you know, that it, it, again, like now my, my smart things hub though, my home hub, I don't see everything going on because it would be overwhelming. I would, I would die or my phone, (laughs) my phone battery would die. Actually, it would just be like constant. Um, See, I I wouldn't want uh, the opposite problem either because then you do tend to tune things out and I don't want companies to say, oh, well, we told them we'll wash your hands of it. You do have to be a little more intelligent. You know, maybe there's like, yeah, just that first time you hear from a new person, it should tell you maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe there are some best practices along those lines of how a user should be aware of some really basic things. events going on with a given object. I don't know. But I also think passwords are another place that this can really be improved. Like I have, I have many dozens of devices and a lot of them require passwords Mm. to connect to other devices and whatnot. And some of the passwords are pretty weak. It's it's kind of frustrating. I mean, it's, in some ways it's nice. In some ways it's frustrating. It's nice because I can't use like one password or anything like that across my IoT devices yet, right? One day, hopefully I will because, oh my God, it's it's really hard to remember passwords across like 40 odd devices in your house oh, yeah. um, and still like have decent passwords because, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah. Will, will everything just work through a, a fingerprint reader or something like that? Yeah. Iris, iris scanning. I'm very excited yeah. about iris scanning. Oh, um, great. Yeah. Does that mean that all my objects now have cameras too? Ah. <laughs> oh, stay tuned. I've got some good stuff on the camera front coming. Um, okay. So, okay. So like as a designer, we've come up with a couple things. So you, you've talked about, you've made active choices. Like you are, you are not doing actuating because you're like, I just don't want to be responsible for blowing up someone's kitchen. Fair enough. Um, you've talked about, um, oh goodness, security by obscurity, which may not work for everybody. Right. I mean, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, we can all, all of us little startups can kind of get away with that. And I think it also, you know, bleeds out to the ecosystem as well. When, you know, all these devices can't actually talk to each other very well. Um, it, it makes it harder to kind of uh, hack a whole network, for better or worse. And then let's see. We've talked about we've we've come up with lots of questions to ask about our partners um, in data sharing. And let's see. We've talked a little bit about the user, and we've talked somewhat about kind of not sending data up to the cloud. Um, that seems to be a weak link. That you're like we're just not going to go there for now. Um, and let's see. We've talked about best practices. Anything else you want to talk about? Um, well, let's see. Two things. One, to kind of finish up the design angle, um, you know, because I'm an industrial designer, so I do like thinking about the, the physical form and what that is communicating. And maybe there's, um, like I, th- I think I referenced it earlier, but maybe there's a bit of a disconnect in that we're making objects that look 
just like they're the things they're replacing. And that's, of course, doing its job in making the cu customer feel comfortable with this replacement. Oh, it's a familiar object. But it's not necessarily, um, I mean, I don't know how you do this right, but you uh, don't want them to be too comfortable because there are new dangers that come with this. And kind of like you were saying, like, if this new object, at the very least, it needs to have LEDs or a push notification to let you know that it's on the Internet. Um, and there are probably some other things as well that you should be concerned with. Um, but I wonder if there is just like a bigger vocabulary that um, connected objects should have so that we feel right about them. I mean, kind of in, in the way that when plastic was first used in objects, uh, they used it to imitate tortoiseshell and, you know, other materials. And then eventually you get to the point where uh, Johnny Ive says, oh, this is uh, the perfect use of plastic, the iPhone 5C, and it's, oh, what, what is it? Unapologetically plastic. And it becomes its own material and you know how to use it. And likewise, I mean, this kind of blurs between the physical and the digital. Um, you know, is there a form or is there a vocabulary that um, strikes the right balance between comfort um, and actually informing the customer as to what's really going on? That's kind of like my big thing that I want to, everyone to think about more. Oh, so like LEDs that kind of convey your risk. Yeah, maybe. Or, uh, I mean, you know, or it's, uh, I don't know, like, you know, like we all know what the power symbol looks like, mm -hmm. uh, power button symbol. Um, although it's, even that is sometimes frustrating if it's just a momentary switch and not say like a toggle switch, because then you can't tell at a glance whether it's on or off. Um, I mean, you know, it's just like good interface design. And yeah, may maybe there is maybe there are other icons, maybe, uh, maybe it's not even LEDs because I mean, LEDs do use power and, you know, most of the time they're not being looked at, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something because like right now across all the devices we use, it's just, uh, you know, I mean, it's not just the communication standard. It's just the use standard. It's just so all over the place. Yeah. But I mean, I guess you could say that about microwaves too, right? That's true. I'm like, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to convey, I'm thinking about all the devices that are connected and trying to picture a common design denomination kind of thing across all of them. So. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know either. Um, I mean, it's really kind of hard to say. I mean, it's probably just about connectivity and power. So, I mean, I don't know, like if everything just had, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you from my experience with twine, because this was meant to be super low power and it didn't have a screen. Um, we had to express quite a bit um, in one LED. And yeah, we kind of fell prey to that problem that you say you've had, where that LED is not on all the time because it's running off of batteries. So it's hard to tell if the thing is on or not unless you go to the web dashboard for it. Um, but, you know, so like if someone's trying to troubleshoot, is it on? Is it connected? Uh, maybe it's got really weak Wi-Fi reception. Um, it's really hard to kind of figure those out when the thing won't really talk to you. And so if we had just done something like, you know, had the Wi-Fi bars, then you could kind of tell that whole range of thing, things. That would be nice. Um, I'm not sure if that really directly addresses things like security and, you know, privacy, um, you know, like the bigger conversation. But We're going to need more bars. More <laughs> We're going to need more LEDs. Um, yes. 
Awesome. All right. Yeah. And so just the other thing that I I thought was worth talking about was just, um, you know, we we were expressing frustration over getting everyone on one page and whether, you know, the transport protocol, so like all join or the Intel uh, one, um, if they had some more access control or encryption and these kinds of things that kind of bleed maybe even on onto the, you know, I mean, just all the way down through the communication stack. Um, could that help enforce something that more than just a recommendation? It could, but they are not going further down the stack to like the, the hardware layers. You would have to see it in like a thread protocol or Zigbee or Z-Wave or Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I will take years of uh, practical use of these things out there for them to kind of determine where it needs to be steered. Kind of like the Bluetooth mesh thing is slowly coming along, right? Oh, it is. We talked about that earlier on the show. So, ah. and, they, and they have security in the Bluetooth mesh. They have they have AES encryption. They mm-hmm. have a couple. They have stuff to prevent man in the middle attacks, and they have kind of anti eaves or anti replay technology in there. Um, so they're working on it. So we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on and talking about such a difficult topic. I know it's not fun, (laughs) but, or maybe it is fun. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it's difficult for us. Then I really feel sorry for uh, the consumer who has to make the decisions. I don't think the consumer thinks about it all that much until it's too late. So, right. I, I applaud you for thinking on thinking about it before people like me have to think about it. <laughs> so thank you.